Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Carlene, for making me, I guess, whatever this does. <laughs> thank you, Gary. Uh, thank you all for being here. I love the Vermont Studio Center um, and some of the poems uh, that I care most about in, of my own work I, I have written here. Uh, inspired by this river and this place. So it's, it, it's an unusual um, honor and joy to be back. So let's see, okay. Um, I'm reading poems from a new book, which is called So Forth, which will be out next spring. Uh, so this is all, this is all new work. Uh, and some of it seems to be in the realm of personal or intimate experience. Some of it might sound autobiographical, it's often fictive, um, and others are, are more historical, political, but I, 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 want, I hope you'll feel that the personal is also historical and political, and that the historical political is also somehow personal, because I, I think it's an artificial division. Cotillion photo. These young women will last forever posed like greyhounds, trapped in the silver crust of the frame. You can't tell one from another, the breed is so pure. They will never run. Each one aloft on a frozen wave of white cotillion lace to resemble marriage, to resemble fate. I remember July sun pouring down in a prickly meadow and a garter snake skin laid out like fairy lingerie on a stone wall. This was Connecticut. There would be a stone wall. Crickets were scraping marrow from the day. I was young. I'd been alone for weeks. I painted the meadow morning and afternoon, trying to capture the crackling sound with my brush. I was reading Oedipus Rex. I understood neither the snakeskin nor the play. Your life is one long night, said Oedipus to the prophet. Oedipus, who saw nothing. Oak trees rustled in drought. In saffron grass, small creatures skittered. There came a day when I said to myself, I should prefer to sleep. Small planets tasted dry and bitter on my tongue. And two days later, I woke, alone in the creaking barn at dusk, not knowing what day, what month, what year, but feeling the hall of earth rolling on its way. It is not your fate that I should be your ruin, the prophet said. I moved my arms, my legs. I unclenched my hands and stood up, dizzy from the cot. What was to come would come in its own good time outside the frame. The moon was rising above the hill. A shy wind gathered force, and trees in their black silhouettes linked arms. Shelf. A human skull among the bibelot, 
Dust to dust, it all evens out on the shelf under a veil of gray. There was a think in that cavity once. I have forgotten whole years of my life. In those eye sockets once, surprise and fear. You picked it up in a field in Turkey, a small head, a child, a youth. Who knows how he, she died? Though we can imagine, yes, horribly imagine, and so forget. Better look at the Kenyan statuette of a woman carrying a pot on her head or the soapstone dove from Japan or twisted driftwood. Why go looking for sorrow? Yet we look, we hunt, you probe the boiled mackerel head for every mite of sustenance, the brain, the tiny white golf balls of eyes, the fatty ribbon along the jaw, an augury in each bite. I don't want to remember how much pain I've caused. Centuries of war we store in our craniums, but in that skull now crouched on the shelf, no echo, no prayer, only air, a relic of air. If you think about what happened in Turkey between 1912 and 1915, you can imagine whose skull that might be. struggle to get this bottle open. <laughs> Rats. As if you rose out of your coffin, as if my heart was your coffin, you rose yesterday in the sapphire faceted light of syringes, hospital sheets, and toxic Niagara mist you painted into a glossy forever. I felt again your weight upon me that Manhattan night in our quasi-childhood. You moved lovelessly upon me, almost angry. Anger I almost allowed myself to know as we lay on a borrowed floor trying to make what might be called love. You broke each spell the way Proust discovered love in captured rats squealing as the hat pin probed their vital organs. I was a slow student. I learned dumbly, blindly, and graduated to my own destructions. The white rats scamper through your landscapes of pill bottles and blood, chopped trees and massacred Adirondack deer. And I dream of knocking all the books off my shelf so that in the light breaking from those pages, I might behold, not hold, your broken face. Um, not a terribly cheerful book. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You can say I have a macabre sense of humor. <laughs> um, 
This one's called Tashlik, um, so, and it's a, a, a Jewish ritual associated with Rosh Hashanah of going to running water and casting bits of bread into the running water and singing the, the psalms and the liturgical prayers to have your sins carried away. Tashlik. Thou wilt cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. We needed a running stream, but we had our sins. We carried our sins, but we needed bread. We found bread. We carried bread in small, stale lumps to the river, the river running as it ought, with water slapped in the face again and again by wind. Glister from high-rises began to wink like foil in the crinkled waves. The pier carved into the current. What? Brilliant sins shook in the punished waves. Do high-rise sins shine brighter? What were your sins? You wouldn't tell, nor would I ask. The piles from ruined piers poked at the not-quite-indigo dusk while cars thrummed along the elevated west side monotone, and planes whined higher, carrying higher sins. And how was it, how did it come to be that I crushed someone's heart? It wasn't like tossing bread in a stream. Then how could it be absolved by casting bread? That heart wasn't stale. It wasn't a lump. No, more like a wounded pigeon, as if I'd stamped on its chest with my heel as it flailed, and now the chorus of excuses rises in plain song. You toss your bread. The railing is cold at my chest. Your bread shivers and bobs in the waves. I clutch my bread. And what do they mean by sin? I clutch my question. Night is hustling down over New Jersey, over the restless flow, the contradiction between a river's thrust to the sea and the tides upstream, beseeching, roughed by wind. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. So I raise my hand in the dark. I unclench my fingers. I let one more sorrow, one more question fall into the sudden, the sodden and anonymous night. Um, so I'm, I'm not good at chattering between poems, but I like to leave a little space between them. <laughs> um, here's another, another New York City scene. Eclipse. When we went looking for that eclipse of the moon in mid-Manhattan, we turned dizzied by silhouettes of towers and thought the moon was swallowed by hulking walls. And only when we headed home did she appear, rusted, a trace of menstrual red half erased in her own ghostly blood. Like the scraps of poems tacked to the screen porch wall, 
of the summer cottage. After a winter of snow, wind, and rain lash, they delivered themselves shyly, ink muted, letters drained of sense. In phantom script, still Helderlin whispered, God is near and hard to grasp, but where danger rises, grows what saves. But what did we know of saving? This, this part of, this isn't the whole book I'm reading to you, don't worry. Um, <laughs> but this little cluster of poems is, is sort of urban poems. Mm. As if. The massive grimy river shouldered its way toward the harbor. I stood under the ruckus of sky. The wind plucked awnings, plastic bags, newspapers, and sent the news twirling over corduroy waters. I'd meant to see art, but the plan miscarried. A guitarist, stationed in a doorway, bent his head to rasp his ballad into the wind's sore throat. Rainlight glossed the guitar strings and played its own tune. This city, such a storm of wants. You have a right to your actions, but never to your actions' fruits, said Krishna in a book I read, with all the etc. about desire and emptiness. What did I want? And why did I want it so hard? Not emptiness, but a self like rain driven aslant the fence, the hacked at sycamore. That morning, laid out on a marble slab at the store, the exposed red knob of a fish's heart kept its pulse in the butchered half creature. No gills, no head, no fins, no guts, no tail, just the flat half body and spine, and the heart blurping and shuddering in its own obstinate rhythm, as if, it seemed to say, as if, you idiot, you ever could be free. It feels a little funny to read that poem in such a Buddhist <laughs> environment as this, <laughs> with that beautiful meditation house right across the <laughs> river. But <laughs> anyway, um, Buddhists know better than anyone that desire is difficult. Let's see how we're doing. Graffiti. I'm really happy about the first line of this poem because it, it, it was a line of scrawled across a wall in New York, and I just copied it down. I like found poetry sometimes, sometimes. Graffiti. Kitty goes commando and the Goldman rats fooey. That blue scaffolding holds up the sky. Who did we think we were padlocking in or out? Give me that huge, looping, black script no one can read, a secret glyph. And just where someone has smashed the window, Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, 
and a dented aluminum frame. He bent down, we know, and wrote something illegible on the ground. A toothy black and white dinosaur gapes. I like the crack in this wall of monsters where skylines topple and ogres twiddle train tracks in their claws like pipe cleaners. Down the long, semi-abandoned street in Queens, calligraphy gallops toward the shop displaying, like guitar strings, seven different iron rods for gates. Hole in the wall, rose sound hole, ribbed sounding board. Always from fissures and gaps, melody strains as trains thunder clank across the girdered overpass. A siren keens, and a solitary man ambles past amputated acacias, fisting out with leaves. Um, so I guess those of you who play the guitar will, I hope, recognize the shape of the guitar in that store selling, selling gates, the hole. Um, some of, I grew up partly in France, and went to school there partly as a child and go back often. It's not news to anybody these days that France is not a happy country. <laughs> not tourist France that I'm talking about here or chanting about. Um, the, in the last few years, there's been a new, well, to me, there were new population of homeless people in France. They weren't the old clochards and they weren't the, the real gypsies, um, but they're called in, in sociological jargon, SDF, sans domicile fixe, without fixed abode. And they tend to move in groups and be sort of, I don't know, 20s and 30s, men and women, often with rather formidable dogs. Um, kind of a slightly, you know, slightly um, military uniform, not exactly uniform, but presentation. And um, so this is a meditation about, about what it is for any of us to think we have a home. Sans domicile fixe. Clouds like boulders. Boulders like petrified clouds that rolled down and stalled in the meadow. That was yesterday. Now we're in the centripetal apartment with peonies aging in two vases, pink and cream petals frizzling into crepe. Mirrors multiply the years. I see you seeing me in the gilt-framed oval by the desk. I see us both in the window reflected in the closet door glass. My eye corners crease. Flecks of dark chocolate streak the inner spines of all the books. Words are drugs. Love is a drug, while Europe contracts into dark burgundy upholstery and cushions. Deep in the French-English dictionary, three asterisks Mark extreme vulgarity. How long can we stay here? Outside, the new homeless twist dreadlocks and pace their mastiffs. Tattoos bulge on their forearms, 
Paper wrappers and crushed cans clot the gutter. Sun leaps off the roof tiles, a brisk sea wind. In the mountains, those small purple flowers with pods and curling tendrils, now you tell me, were vetch. I always love that word vetch, and sort of just waiting for time to fit it into a poem. <laughs> Um, maybe because it sort of reminds me of kvetch. <laughs> 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 um, which I'm good at. Um, the core of this book is a sequence called um, A Legend of Good Women, which is a title stolen from Chaucer, one of his more boring works, but that doesn't matter. Um, I wanted the women. And so this is a sequence of poems about uh, forceful women, remarkable women, um, a few of them remarkably horrible. Um, um, and I'm just going to read, let's see, I'm going to read three of them. Um, Gwen John, I know some of you here are visual artists. Gwen John is a painter I adore. I, I hope you know her work. She, her brother, Augustus John, was more famous in, in their day in the 20th century. Um, but Gwen John, I think, is, and he eventually, he thought Gwen was the real the really great painter in the family. Anyway, she spent most of her, her life in, her working life in France, and she was the, um, a model for Rodin and a lover of Rodin for some years. Um, and, uh, and in this poem, which comes from a biographical, uh, something that actually happened, Rodin, whose erotic drawings and paintings and sculptures are masterpieces, I think, of erotic art, of art, period. Anyway, he, he, he wanted Gwen, his lover and model, to make love in front of him with an assistant of his, a, a woman, Hilda Flaudin, um, so that he could draw them while they were making love. So, so this, sort of, this kind of male voyeurism about lesbian lovemaking has always struck me as rather peculiar, but then, anyway. Um, so. <laughs> it's a fact, <laughs> a well-known fact. Anyway, here's a, here's a scene. It's called Rodin Commands. Gwen John and Hilda Flodin, his assistant, make love for his viewing. When you will do the unthinkable because the other wills it, as peony petals droop and cringe, and the whole blossom crumples sidewise, open to fingers, coaxing it apart. We could call this a loss of form, a velvet shivering. She, upon his instruction, lies down with Hilda, taking leave of her own body, for truly, whose are those limbs entwined, and whose the convulsion trilling down even to stiffening toes. It's his brush that arcs, his aquarelle pleasuring these collapsible blooms. The paper drips and runs, small flames shudder in the coal stove, the bouquet sags. His greatest gift will have been to prove, once and for all, 
that the person craving is not. I, I meant that final syntax to be ambiguous. <laughs> I think syntax is a force in poetry that's insufficiently recognized these days by people writing in English. So I'm always sort of rooting for syntax, 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 it's power. Um, Coco Chanel is another of my, my, um, my women. I think she was a brilliant artist, a truly brilliant artist, um, a design, um, and a moral monster, as I hope this poem will make clear. <laughs> Chanel. A garment should be logical. Coco Chanel. Yes, I made the perfume. Yes, I am an orphan. Light my cigarette. Just so. The perfect profile intaglioed in air. Now let the hems down. Now we slash the collar. And when a man enters, always make him pay. Always a stray prince around before the casino closes. This century tilts. I'm good at sphinxing. Elegance excludes. I exclude milk, waste, tears, uterus. Do I remember the lard colored orphanage halls? No, I refuse. Place a Coromandel screen in front of the car wreck and your world war, my demi-monde. We live in an age with no interiors, and his blood scrawled the pavement by the crumpled car. Embellishment gives way to line and ease of motion, a Bugatti flair, wealth assuming the proportion of catastrophe. And if the other was a German officer, I'm on my knees with a corona of pins bristling from my lips. It's not adoration, it's revenge. Um, she did have, uh, during the occupation, lover, one of her lover was a German uh, Gestapo officer, which meant that after the war she had to live in Switzerland for a while as a persona non grata. But she came back to Paris and, and, and made more fantastic clothes. <laughs> Another of my women is Marianne Faithful. Um, those of you who are sort of more like my age may remember her singing in her little girl voice when she was. Uh, hanging out with the Rolling Stones, and then she had a long period of, uh, not a long, uh, some years of, of, of terrible drug abuse and alcohol and even living on the street, and when she got sober again um, and began singing again, her voice was wrecked, but I thought it became a great artistic instrument at that point, and the record I love is Broken English. A Way. The whole trick of this thing is to get out of your own light. Marianne Faithful. 
She said she sang very close to the mic to change the space. And I changed the space by striding down the boulevard Raspail at dusk in tight jeans until an Algerian engineer plucked the pen from my back pocket. As if you're inside my head and you're hearing the song from in there. He came from the desert. I came from green suburbs. We understood nothing of one another over glasses of metallic red wine. I was playing girl. He played man. Several plots were afoot, all misfiring. One had to do with my skimpy black shirt and light hair, his broad shoulders and hunger after months on an oil rig. Another was untranslatable. Apollinaire burned his fingers on June's smoldering lyre, but I had lost my pen. The engineer read only construction manuals. His room was dim and narrow, and no, the story didn't slide that way, though there are many ways to throw oneself away. One singer did it by living by a broken wall until she shredded her voice. But still, she offered each song, she said, like an Appalachian artifact, like trash along the riverbank, chafing at the quay, plastic bottles, a torn shirt, fractured dolls, through which the current chortles an intimate tune. Um, there's a, some of my more political poems are disguised. Uh, so I think I'll, these are two short ones. I, I'll, I'll read them and then uh, conclude quite quickly. Um, so this is, this is poem, if you know Milton's great last work, Samson Agonistes, who have that in mind, but even if you don't know Samson Agonistes, which I hope you'll all go out and read if you haven't read it, because it's <laughs> one of the great works of English. Um, so Milton was blind when he composed it, and it was after uh, the Puritan Revolution, and Cromwell had all been destroyed, everything he had lived for, his vision of a republic had been destroyed, and the king, Charles II, was back, and roaring restoration of, um, and I hope you will see that the restoration of monarchy in this poem might be familiar to you from some things that have been going on in this country. Samson, 1674, for John Milton. Their theaters cackle and bray, their carriages clutter the streets, cockades, torches, liveries clash. Philistine hearts, jocund and sublime, they smear their deals, gold on columns and cornices. Temples fume with burning fat. The choicest girls parade with coal-ringed eyes and spangled thighs. Let the poor creep into shadows. They offend. The prisons team, and one old man sits in his doorway in a loose gray coat, letting sunlight 
lay its palms on his sightless eyes. He's seen too much, kingdoms askew, skies collapsing, idols crammed back into shrines. Let the mad cavalcade pass by. There's a kind of defeat that resembles victory. There's a temple raised up only in the mind, and another to be pulled down in dream, arms wrapped around massive pillars to tug and shatter the roof on guzzling lords. Not by his arms, not by his gouty hands, but the phoenix spark sleeps in ash. I hope we have that phoenix spark. Um, I'm particularly reading this next small sort of Frenchy poem um, for for uh, Jody because um, she's lived for years in the part of the world in southern France where this this is set. Um, it's in it's set in the town of Montpellier, uh, which was one of the cities ravaged by the wars of religion between the Protestants and the Catholics, and eventually the Catholics won and took it over. So I also wrote this poem with contemporary United States in mind. Louis XIV, Louis XIV. Who shall put down heresy? Who did put down heresy? Who trampled Protestants and all agreements with Protestants? Who laid waste to their churches and shattered their walls and hurled their dead from their burial grounds? Who immured their women for 40 years in the Tour de Constance? Who rammed a canal from ocean to the Mediterranean? Who stopped at nothing? Who wiped all trace of the Languedoc from the tongues of the south and scattered the Cathar ghosts in a salt wind? Still astride your bronze horse, still charging the gates of your own kingdom, at what cost, O king? At what cost? And how will you render us pure? Um, so I'm going to end with a few quieter poems. <laughs> I've gotten very, um, um, very absorbed in the pre-Socratic philosophers. I had read Heraclitus as a teenager, which I think most of us did. Um, but I got more in recently been reading these other guys, Thales and Anaximander. They're pretty cool. Thales. Solstice and the mountain streams run dry, but leave their script. Stained slate, caved ledges, middens of twigs. Driftwood skeletons hem the reservoir. But the one who first measured solstices, predicted a solar eclipse, calculated the height of a pyramid by the ratio of its shadow, and taught us water is the only element left no writing. Turtles are on the move, small tanks in regulation military gray with scimitar claws, switchblade tails, broad plated faces, obsidian eyes and beaks, 
inch across tarmac looking for nesting ground. They will lay ferocious eggs and abandon them. All things are full of gods, Thales is said to have said. You can hear them hissing. You can hear them clack their beaks as they stare at us. Actually, that poem, which I wrote last summer, um, I also wrote with the American politics in mind, particularly in an agony over the families torn apart at the Mexican border. Um, so as I said, my politics and my poems are fairly disguised, but I hope not entirely disguised. Um, I think I'm just going to read two more. Um, this is Anaximander. That the earth is suspended. As Scylla prinks purple from half-thawed clods, and the cardinal flings his ribbon of song in two high arcs, then trails the vibrato among the boughs, May unclenches, but not enough. Buds grip fetal leaves. Each night scatters frost. On sidewalks we tread on broken sky. You are sick and far away. The world is in flux, said Anaximander. Worlds are born, appear, and disappear. We perish, even the gods fade. Spare me the industrial daffodils poking through scraps of snow. The season will have its hard birth, and we will be dragged into light. For how many years has that ill corroded your gut? Whirlwinds, typhoons break out of the cloud. The tearing makes thunder, the crack against black makes the flash. So natural philosophy began. You watched glaciers slide and crash at the tip of the earth. You floated on a rope into ice crevasses to catch the gleam and the groan. Ice sculpted the planet and sculpts it still. You hammered aluminum into that shape. The stars are a wheel of fire, broken off from earth fire, surrounded by air. We came from the unlimited. To it, we return. So taught Anaximander of Miletus, who thought we would be destroyed. And I'm going to end with this little one. For Chiara. Leaves crackle beneath our feet, tinder, kindling. As we walk by the brook, the crabapple tree, a crimson pointy east nimbus, you want to hold each wounded soul in your hands. Autumn flares, the damaged, the human berserk, 
find their way to you. I don't know how you sleep. In the Gorgon's blood, one drop is poison, the other heals. Fevered autumn, autumn I adore, croons an old song. We stroll the road, scuffing dust, and come upon a garter snake lying motionless. Its tail, we guess, nicked by a passing car. When we nudge it, it flips to its back in an agonized S, squirms, but can't advance. Its belly gleams. We edge it into the grass. Do we stop seeing when we walk away? The brook prattles on. Homes far off. Dusk settles slowly among leaves. That's not mercy scattering from its hands. Thank you. Thank you.